Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for affording us this time, your time, that you've given us this day to worship you and bring glory to you through the study of your word. Father, thank you for making this a day to celebrate, for as only you know the time and day of our Lord's return, we celebrate each day as if it were our last. What a wonderful perspective to have, compliments of your word, and at the encouragement of your spirit. Father, we pray that our hearts, our minds, and our souls are ever grateful for all that you've done for us and continue to do. Your grace is amazing. So we pray that we here this morning, as well as those unable to be here, but truly wish to be, remain grateful, for this is what is pleasing to you. We do just ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel, Salvation and Sanctification, Part 40. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans 8.28. Let's give that precious passage we focused on this past week. One last review. The Spirit still has some things to say about this big picture item called predestination. Romans 8.28, please. Romans 8.28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. That's that Greek word proorizo up here in the board for predestined, means to predetermine, to foreordain, To mark out, to appoint beforehand, refers to pre-established boundaries. For example, before creation, predestination is part of God's divine decree. It's an important topic for us to assimilate into our souls because it is a big picture, sort of collective. He foreknew and therefore he predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. That's what proorizo means. Look at verse 30. And these whom he did that thing, whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. We concluded after pondering a Domino's pizza analogy (laughs) that like their pizzas are made to be delivered, so our believers made with a purpose to be delivered. God has decreed it so. And that was one of our conclusions from our more in-depth study this past week on this topic of predestination. Every believer was made to be delivered, Romans 8, 29 and 30. And that's a perspective that uh, we all need to cling to. You were made, purpose made, Uh, even under the sort of 
foreknowledge of God from before human history even. He knew that he would make you so that he could deliver you to his glory. And that's the point of predestination. Also, your deliverance then is part of God's divine decree. When God decrees something, it is absolute. So in other words, God has a purpose. He's always had a purpose for you as a believer from before you were even born. And so when we think about the title, the gospel, salvation, and sanctification, we have to think about those as one sort of collective from God's perspective. We do study out things like salvation and sanctification in either tenses or phases, but the point is that God's not tensed and God's not phased. God, to God, everything's present tense. That's what the decree is all about. That's what omniscience is all about. That's what foreknowledge is all about. And that's, of course, what predestination is all about. So your deliverance is guaranteed because it's part of God's divine decree. Your salvation, sanctification, and deliverance in every facet of those terms has been foreordained since before human history. And that's a very valuable perspective, folks. Up here on the board, more on predestination. It is a subset of foreordination. Some of you are familiar with that term as well. It's a broader stroke, if you would. That's him ordaining everything, including things like unbelievers, things that are even unholy or even uh, evil. Uh, That's foreordination. But predestination refers to the destiny. Think of predestination. Destiny is right in the word refers to the destiny of believers specifically regarding things that are guaranteed to the saved. Believers were predestined before human history even began as part of God's divine decree. We looked at Romans 8, 29 and 30 just there. We also looked at Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 and also 3, 11 to 12. Hold your thumb there. Go to Ephesians 1, 4. Ephesians 1.4, we'll read the shorter version. And this is just to amplify how predestination shows up in Scripture, what it means, what it should mean to we believers, how it should take a load off, so to speak, understanding His perspective and the fact that these things are done deals, salvation, sanctification, deliverance, they are guaranteed by the very integrity of God. They are decreed. Ephesians 1.4, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That means before any of this, folks. Before the foundation of the world, He chose us. He elected us. We are predestined. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined, there's that Greek word proerizo again, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Obviously, it's all intentional. To the praise of the glory of His grace. And that's another important point we didn't discuss last week, but we will this morning. To the praise of the glory. In other words, what's the purpose of predestining us? What's the purpose of setting us apart? What's the purpose of saving us and sanctifying us and delivering us in time? Well, it's to His glory. 
And that's what verse 6 says. To the praise of the glory of His grace. Uh, it's only by the grace of God that we are what we are. Amen? Yeah. And that's all he's saying. He's saying to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Of course, this predestination concept is exclusive to believers, so it's in the Beloved, in Christ, up here on the board. To the praise of His glory. Let that sink in. To the praise of His glory. In other words, what's the purpose behind all this? Why are we even predestined? It's to bring glory to Him. All these blessings that we receive, glory be to God. To the praise of His glory. The things that He does by grace through faith in you are to His glory. Man is very good at trying to rob that, trying to self-sanctify, trying to quote Galatians 3.3, 3, uh, take it from here. But that's a lie. The things that He does by grace through faith in you are to His glory, implying that He isn't going to allow you to alter His decree even. Let that sink in. All of this is to His glory. And if He ordained it so, then it's going to come to pass. You might argue, hey, but what about my free will? That seems like I don't have a choice in the matter. It's true, you won't change God's decree. But as I've taught you in the past, His decree is a function of His omniscience and foreknowledge. And we saw that word foreknowledge earlier. So He guarantees certain things because He's already seen them. And that's how you think about the divine decree. As far as God is concerned, He's already seen it all. He's seen your tomorrow. He's seen everything you're going to do from now until the day you die. And all of it's been foreordained. So from His perspective, everything's, let's say, present tense, so to speak. From God's perspective, everything is present tense. So something that might give us you know, fits in our minds doesn't give him fits at all. But it's a valuable perspective for us to ponder. Think of it this way. The divine decree. When the word makes a statement about God's decree, for example, predestination of believers, it, remember he, he is the word, it is speaking from his perspective. His, quote, present tense, which is different than man's naturally. Our present tense is right now. You're all sitting here in a church, in a lovely church, listening to some really st stunningly handsome man teach you. <laughs> Diane. <laughs> Our present tense is right now, right? God's present tense is everything. It's the parade analogy. We look through a window as a parade goes by. He sees the whole parade. So when you look at it from God's perspective, the divine decree is that he sees the entire parade. He saw it before human history, before the, quote, parade even started. And he foreordained and then predestined after he elected each believer to certain blessings. And that's how we think of the divine decree. 
And there's lots of goodness that comes out of being able to shift our attention that way to elevate our thinking to his present tense. And to me, I closed on Thursday with this, to me it's very freeing knowing that he's got it all planned out. It's very freeing and you can run with that in your own, on your own time. But here's the point in the board, the divine decree... When the Word makes a statement about God's decree, for example, predestination of believers, it is speaking from His perspective, His present tense, which is different than man's naturally. It does take most people a little while to get their bearings on such things, but once you do, it's a wonderfully freeing experience. Again, the point we are developing is that predestination is a part of God's decree, up here on the board, again, it's a subset of foreordination. In other words, foreordination would be the entire parade. But predestination is a subset that refers to the destiny of believers, specifically regarding things that are guaranteed to the saved. Believers then were predestined before human history even began as part of God's divine decree. One last helper passage, and this is from the contemporary English version of the Bible, Ephesians 3:11-12 God did this according to his eternal plan and he was able to do what he had planned because of all that Christ Jesus our Lord had done Christ now gives us courage and confidence so that we can come to God by faith All right go back to where we first noted the term Romans 8:29 Romans 8.29, the point there is that all of this is part of God's plan. He willed it so, He foreordained it, He predestined each believer. Romans 8.29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Remember, Paul uses the past tense there to stress the certainty. Up here on the board, a little more on perspective. Emphasis on predestination gets you thinking in absolute certainty about salvation and sanctification. That's the reason why he's emphasizing predestination as of late for perspective's sake. It gets you thinking about absolute certainties about salvation and sanctification. Of course, salvation and sanctification are our primary course of study. But when he injects something big picture like this relative to his decree, i.e. predestination, it gives us a sense of confidence, as Paul said in Ephesians earlier. It gives us a sense of assurance, a sense of enablement when it comes to even things like perseverance, getting through tribulations, understanding that there is a certain joy set before us. There is a certain hope eternal set before us. There are certain promises that we've been predestined to have, and they are guaranteed. So the emphasis on predestination gets us thinking in absolute certainty about salvation and sanctification. You should not be insecure at all. That's why the Bible says, cast all your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. 
He doesn't want you to be insecure. He wants you to be secure in Christ. With that said, we need to continue with the doctrinal groundwork we began on Tuesday. Here's the big picture that he's been asking us to cling to. So we're shifting gears slightly here. But this is the big picture. Keep with you all that work we just did on predestination. Our course of study, of course, lately has been salvation and sanctification. It's in our title. God saves and sanctifies. He saves us from sin. He sanctifies us. Sanctify just means made holy, set apart. He sanctifies us to himself. So he saves us from sin, and then he sets us apart for himself. He moves us, in other words, from sin to righteousness. And in every tense and every facet or phase of sanctification even, that's the pattern. It's always a movement from sin to righteousness, from darkness to light, from domain to domain. And that's how we have to think about God's good work. And then you have that stamp of approval like predestination. It's guaranteed. It's not an if, and, or but. It's a guarantee because he already decreed it. And that's what the perspective, this big picture perspective he's been trying to give us now for a while is all about. He saves and sanctifies. He saves us from sin. He sanctifies us to himself. These are two sides of the same coin, both guaranteed for the believer. Analogs are repent and believe, receive faith, you know, confess if sin or confess Jesus is Lord. Confess and press on, filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, influenced, however you'd like to look at that. The point is it's impossible for a person to give another one only one side of a coin. A believer receives both sides of the coin guaranteed. To be delivered implies movement, a divine activity, if you will. That's deliverance. But what is deliverance? The front side of the coin, salvation, relates to sin. The back side of that coin, I'm using the coin analogy, sanctification relates to righteousness. Whenever you hear the term salvation or saved, in the biblical sense, you relate it directly to sin. Whenever you hear the term sanctify or sanctified or sanctification, you should relate that to righteousness. So one side, salvation relates to sin, sanctification relates to righteousness. Deliverance may, may then be thought of as the flipping of the coin in the life of a believer. A believer is delivered from sin to righteousness, from the domain of darkness to the domain of light, from death to life, etc., etc. That's the general pattern. That's the movement, if you would. And then, of course, the simple truth up here on the board, every believer was made to be delivered Again, your deliverance is part of God's divine decree. When God decrees something, it is absolute. Now, because of the intensity of the lessons as of late, and this is a little sidebar lesson, I think this is the second or third time he's brought it up. Because of the intensity of the lessons as of late, the Spirit's been dubbing them all do-overs do-over lessons, meaning that you should be listening to them twice. I use the Lamborghini in the poppy field example. If you're doing 200 miles an hour by a field of flowers, you're not going to see them all. You're not going to capture them all. So you have to go back on your own time. I suppose that's why he's got us situated with a phenomenal website that is available to you 24-7. What do you think? 
But as he reminded you on Thursday, it's your choice to obey or disobey his wise counsel. I mentioned to you that there are around 150 passages in the Bible that have the words obey or disobey or their derivatives. About 150. That's a lot. Hold your thumb. I want to show you a purpose statement. Go to Ephesians 3.11. Ephesians 3.11. I gave you the contemporary in this earlier, but I want you to see it firsthand. This is what we would call a purpose statement. Why? Why do I need to obey? Why do I need to obey? I don't want to listen to that bald guy. By the way, you're not handsome at all. Ephesians 3.11, this was in accordance with the what? Eternal purpose. He has purpose for you, in other words. But here's the deal. If you refuse, if you disobey, if you reject, every time he tries to give you grace, like you are getting right now, and you reject it, which is your free will, then you are stunting his will in your life. But he has an eternal purpose for you. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Up here on the board. What is the eternal purpose after all? The Bible speaks of it often, not always with that language, but it's alluded to quite often. The eternal purpose of the individual, of the capital C church. What is God, why did God, why does God just rip us out of here after we're saved? Why wouldn't he Why does he keep us here, in other words? The eternal purpose refers to the church's supreme purpose of glorifying God. We members have been predestined to partake in that activity. I'm bringing a couple of concepts together right now for you. There is an eternal purpose that refers to the church's supreme purpose of glorifying God. Now, some people right now go, what do you mean? I thought it was to glorify me. I thought God left me so I could have this fabulous life. So I could get a nice job and I could say, God, you gave me that job so I could get this nice life. God, you gave me this life so I could have this nice reputation. God, you gave me this reputation. It's all about me, me, me. I want to glorify me. It's not about me. Oh, darn it. I better go find another church. I don't like what this is being taught here. I thought this was all about me. No, it's not about you hate to break it to you. This is about God. So you'll take the salvation, but then you'll want to sanctify yourself. Galatians 3.3, is that what this is all about? This is your intent? You're going to substitute your will for God's now that he's done the good work at the cross for you? Thank you very much. I'm going to heaven. Booyah, I'll see you up there. See you later. Time to self-sanctify. It's all about me. No? No takers? You know why? Because there's the Word of God staring you in the face. That's why. That's why you're not able at this point in time. But you know what happens, right? It's like, oh, I can't, I can't. Okay. Then you walk out there, you're like, woo, freedom! <laughs> it's like this, like, <laughs> It's in the back seat with the taco shells and the French fries from the 80s, right? <laughs> it's all about me! There are people, let's face it, there are people that go to church because they want to find out all the ways to make God a puppet 
so that they can bring glory to themselves. We call that self-sanctification. Self-righteousness. Sanctification, righteousness, right? Self-sanctification. Self-righteousness. Listen, folks. The supreme purpose, the reason why he leaves you here is to bring glory to him. Not yourself. This, this, this life, heck, if you've been purchased, if you've been redeemed, if you are saved, you've been bought with a price. That means you are his slave now. His due loss. He says, do business with my grace. Not for sanctifying you, because I'm going to come back and I'm going to judge. It's not about you. I know that's shocking to some of you. The eternal purpose refers to the church's supreme purpose of glorifying God. We members have been predestined to partake in that activity. So you see the overarching theme in all the activities of God, whether salvation, sanctification, or deliverance, is so that He is glorified. So when you think about why He ordained this particular pulpit, Go ahead, take a, take a moment. I'll take a sip of water. Hey, Jim. When you think about why he ordained this particular pulpit, this man with this spiritual gift, in your life specifically, you must conclude that he purposed all of it so that you personally would glorify him in time. This is a gift, folks. This is all a gift. Part of His will, His purpose for your life, so that you would bring glory, glory to Him. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. It's not even your life. You need to realize right now that He gives you grace when you are humble enough to realize that your job is to glorify Him with it, not yourself. I repeat, you need to realize right now that He gives you grace when you are humble enough to realize that your job is to glorify Him with it, not yourself. One of the greatest gifts you've been given is speaking to you right now. Me. <laughs> you know what? Now some of you may be like, who's this guy think he is? I got some visitors over here. How are you? They're like, this guy's obnoxious. This is what I have to do to guide him around. Bye. It's true. I don't think I'm a gift. I'm not like God. Trust me. It's not about me. But I can say that I am a gift in a sense. And I can say that with complete confidence in a straight face and in complete and utter humility. Because I know what Paul knew up here on the board. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God I am what I am. That's how I'm a gift to you. It's God's grace. I'm just a a vessel of mercy. Thank God. And it's nice to be utilized. It's nice to realize that 
I too have a purpose like you in the church. That's 1 Corinthians 12. One's not better than the next. That's also in 1 Corinthians 12. But I am a gift to you. This pulpit, this spiritual gift, even my person, think about that. I was made to be delivered. I was purpose made to be here this morning in front of all of you. That's a gift. And I haven't forgotten that. And the day I do, I will step down. But I haven't forgotten it. So I say what I say with, even though we joke around about it, with complete confidence and utter humility that this is a gift to you. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. That's Paul's sentiment. You need to realize that this morning, this lesson, this man with the gift, has a purpose in your life. And it's to His glory, not yours. Go to Ephesians 4.11. Ephesians 4.11. We're still on this sidebar, by the way. We're going to get back to salvation and sanctification proper. But on this note, this recurring note this past week of obedience and listening, because some people, they, truth be told, they take offense. How dare you tell me I have to listen to a message again? I'm not telling you you have to do anything. I'm telling you should. I'm telling you if you want to really listen to God, then you'll listen to what I just told you. Because that's God's will, not mine. I'm not gonna, do, I, do I call anybody up? Bill. Bill. I was driving by extra slow, and I looked through and I saw in your 70-inch plasma that you were watching a football game. Now, you should be, you should be watching me again. You think I do that stuff? Are you kidding me? I go home and pass out. Go drool in my chair. This is wearying, folks. I don't really drool in my chair, by the way. You guys at Ephesians 4.11? And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. One office. For the purpose of equipping for the equipping there's your purpose why do you give this thing for a purpose all this foreordained all of this predestination for you for the equipping of the saints for the purpose work of service to the building up of the body of christ more purpose until we attain to the unity of the faith more purpose and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. More purpose. So if the man with the spiritual gift that is purposed to equip you for the supreme service of glorifying God says, do these lessons over, or whatever he might be saying at that moment in time, then your job is to obey. Go to Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17. Your job is to obey. Hebrews 13, 17. 
Obey your leaders and submit to them. Should I really have to say anything else other than that? Not really. But he wants me to. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For this would be unprofitable for you. Imagine that. Obedience to me is for your benefit. Obedience to this pulpit, this gift, is for your benefit. You know, there's other scripture that says, don't lord it over them, to we pastors. Heck, we have whole chapters dedicated to us, so don't feel slighted. Oh, well, well, no, well, you try being in this office. We have whole chapters saying... Look, obedience to the pastor, to your leaders, submitting to them, is for your benefit. That's how you connect his will, his purpose in your life to him. It's divinely delegated authority. It's shepherd, capital S, under shepherd. So, submitting to your pastor. Our Lord's authority has been delegated to his under-shepherds for the sake of his sheep. It's the sheep's job to obey his authority, not challenge it. If you lose faith in it, then leave. How many times have I said that? How many times, honestly? Some of you even get offended. Why do you say stuff like that? Because that's how I feel about it. If you lose faith in this pulpit, then leave. Otherwise, seek guidance in humility. But don't be that lukewarm person that's going to sit there and pick and choose and then take issue with the man when you don't like the actual lessons. Don't do that thing. Why do I say that? Well, it does cause me grief, like Scripture says. But I know that it's for your benefit that he gives these gifts. Obedience is to your benefit. If you choose not to obey, then please know that while it does hurt me a bit, it hurts you much more. And God will not dispense discipline on me, since you are not rejecting any error of my own. You are rejecting Him. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7-8 For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So, He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Yeah. His purpose is to sanctify you. And if you say no, or if you disobey the things that come from the pulpit, the guidance, like, you know, hey, do these lessons over, you need to. They're really packed full. It's not often I say that. But when I say it, He must mean it. And if you reject it, then you're not rejecting me. And that helps me. That, quote, saves me daily. Delivers me daily. From the grief that it causes my soul. Knowing that no matter what I do, some people are just going to do whatever they want to do. 
That is a conclusion that I've had to swallow. It's a tough swallow, but that's the way it is. People are going to do, no matter what I do say, no matter if I do cartwheels, stand on my head right here, whatever, people are going to do what they're going to do in the end. But it's my job to counsel you on his behalf on the benefits of your obedience. So I'm just doing my job. And just as a side observation, the folks that whine and complain in a cyclical manner are the disobedient ones. There are people that aren't here right now that should be here. And then at some later date, I don't know, week, month from now, it'll be obvious that they're miserable again. These folks that are whining and complaining in this cyclical manner are the disobedient ones. There's some truth. If you were to ask them today, it's possible they'd say, oh, you know, I'm on top of the world. But just wait a little while when their conscience overcomes them and they begin feeling the weight of God's presence and possibly discipline. They'll be singing a different tune by then, and the Holy Spirit will be singing the same one saying, I told you so. And then oddly enough, I may even hear from them asking questions like, why am I like this? And I'll do everything in my power not to roll my eyes. All right, enough on authority orientation? (laughs) Happy Sunday! I mean, we can laugh about it, but don't just go, ha, 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 that was all a joke, right? No, no. Diane. Those things have to be said for your benefit. Okay, back to our working framework. Here's where we have been situated. Two perspectives, basically. God's and man's under the salvation perspective and the sanctification perspective. We'll see that in a moment. But under the salvation perspective, we have positional salvation, which is from the penalty of sin, and that's past tense. We have experiential salvation, means we're saved daily. That's from the power of sin. We may be saved from the penalty, but the power of sin is still in our lives. The presence of it, if you would, is still around. And then ultimately, eternal life, heaven, From the very presence of sin, we will be saved. And so there's three tenses, past, present, and future. From man's perspective, from God's perspective, it's all present tense. And then the other half that we haven't gotten to yet is the sanctification perspectives. Again, to be sanctified is just to be set apart for him. So from God's perspective, salvation and sanctification, they're already done. Everything's present tense to him. He sees the whole parade. But for man, we might look at sanctification in phases, Positionally means we have imputed righteousness. That's a judicial statement. You hear the word imputed. It means judicially. The gavels come down. You've been imputed. You're saved, in other words, declared righteous. Experiential, which means imparted righteousness. That's when you bear good fruit in time by the grace of God. You're sanctified daily. And then, of course, ultimately sanctified. That's an eternal reality, and you're completely righteous. You have your resurrection body, no more sin nature, all that good stuff. We're going to get to that in the future. That's the big picture working framework. We are just about finished up with salvation perspectives. We went through these. We saw positional, 
salvation. Again, with positional salvation, we are saved from the penalty of sin. Here was our summary principle up here on the board. Positional salvation, past tense for believers. God's will is to save and deliver the whole world, John 3.16, from the guilt and penalty of sin. However, the gate is narrow that leads to life, Matthew 7.13-14, so not all are saved. A person is positionally saved when they believe, are justified, and righteousness is imputed judicially to their account, Luke 7.50, 1 Corinthians 1.18, 2 Corinthians 2.15, 2 Timothy 1.9. Next, with experiential uh, salvation, we are saved from the power of sin. And I'm going quickly because these are all points of review. Of course, you would know that because you've already listened to these lessons twice. <laughs> experiential salvation is a present tense issue. This is where we're at now. God saves us daily. God wills to save, deliver His children from the power of sin by means of faith, Psalm 34, 17-19. However, the vestiges of sin frustrate a believer's deliverance through persistent influences. We have three enemies, the flesh, Romans 7, 14-25, Satan, James 4, 7, the world, 1 John 5, 4-5. And then the supporting passages we used John 17, 17, Romans 6, 14, 8, 2, Galatians 5, 16, Philippians 2, 12 to 13. And then finally, God saves us ultimately from the very presence of sin. And this is where we'll slow down slightly. From the very presence of sin is what we call ultimate salvation. Remember, salvation always relates to sin. Ultimately, relating to sin, the very presence of sin is gone. Okay? So that's the final tense, if you would. It's a future tense up here on the board. Ultimate salvation, future tense. God wills to save, deliver His children from the very presence of sin for all of eternity. Salvation is consummated at the end of world human history, Revelation 19.1 we looked at. Heaven will be without the presence of sin. We looked at Revelation 21.22-27 on Thursday. In support of this principle, we also had gotten through Romans 13.11 and Ephesians 2.5-7, as well as Philippians 1.6, and that's where we stopped. So again, uh, let's, go, uh, let's finish this survey up. Go to 1 Peter 1.3. 1 Peter 1.3, we'll finish our survey. We've got a couple of, uh, a couple of verses left. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3. Again, we're working out ultimate salvation, which is a future tense issue. We're just seeing the Scripture so that we're convinced of it in our souls. It's not just Pastor Ed on conjecture or speculation. This is what Scripture has to say. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for an ultimate salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter's talking about 
ultimate salvation there. Go to 1 John 3, 1. 1 John 3, 1. So this is a, a future tense issue from our perspective. An ultimate salvation, in other words, saved from the very presence of sin. That will be our condition, if you would, our state in heaven. 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, he, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. Again, we will be ultimately saved from the very presence of sin. Again, that's just to amplify that, quote, final tense, of salvation up here on the board, ultimate salvation. God wills to save, deliver His children from the very presence of sin for all of eternity. Salvation is consummated at the end of world human history. Heaven will be without the presence of sin. And I think that's about enough forward progress for now. I don't want to get into sanctification perspectives with so little time left. Um, But remember the big picture. And please spend some real time on this stuff in prayer and quiet contemplation. You need to do so. Trust me. And I've said this a thousand times if I've said it once. If If it takes the guy standing behind the pulpit whose life is set apart to study the Word for your benefit, it takes me a fair amount of time to sit and contemplate Uh, and get these things right in my own soul, then it's going to take you some time as well. I know some of you are offended by that. You know? But I propose that to be true. Is that fair? Oh, mighty ones? Oh, brilliant ones? It's funny how he puts like the, 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 the stupidest, is that the right word? Or most stupid, where's Robin? the most stupid person in the whole congregation in front of all you brilliant people. Oh, there's no lasso now? You get the point, I hope. It takes a while. I don't care how smart you are. It takes a while to ponder these things, to pray on them, to contemplate them. It takes time. Some people are like, I got no time. Just look at my day planner. Yeah. It's filled with self-sanctification and stench. <laughs> Happy Sunday. See what you started, Diane? I was in a good mood until you said I was ugly. <laughs> now I'm being all petty and punchy and pithy. Anyways. So this is what we just finished. Salvation perspectives. Salvation from sin, that's God's perspective. Whether you're talking about past, present, or future tense from man's perspective, God's saving us from sin, whether it's the penalty, the power, or the very presence of sin. Okay? We'll be presumably getting to sanctification perspectives as well on Sunday as we've still got some groundwork to do there also. But again, here's our big picture up here on the board. 
God saves and sanctifies. He saves us from sin. He sanctifies us to himself. These are two sides of the same coin, both guaranteed for the believer. Analogs are repent, believe, receive faith, or confess and press on. It's impossible for a person to give another only one side of a coin. A believer receives both sides of the coin. On deliverance, he gave us this, the front side of the coin. Salvation relates to sin, whereas the back side of the coin, sanctification, relates to righteousness. Deliverance may be thought of as flipping of the coin in the life of a believer. A believer is delivered from sin to righteousness, from the domain of darkness to the domain of light, from death to life, etc. And then, of course, the simple truth. Every believer was made to be delivered. And when God decrees something, it is absolute. So, keep your eyes on the big picture, folks. It's imperative that you do. I want so badly for all of you to live the gospel reality, to live a life of hope and peace. I want you all to be well at heart, not troubled or anxious, but rather clothed with the same joy that Christ and his apostles had, confident with what the future holds for all of us. And just for some closing encouragement, go to Romans 15.1. We'll close with a passage. I'll show you a video. And that'll be that. Romans 15.1. Paul's putting some closure on his dissertation. Romans 15.1, we can grab some encouragement. I'm just going to read it with you. Not going to say too much. Romans 15.1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. I know, I just promise I get to one verse. I can't help it. There's so much there. Is there not so much there? I mean, look at that. We are strong. Look at I would argue, now don't get all puffy. Don't get all puffy. I would, get, I would argue that this congregation is very strong, relatively speaking. There's not many Christians that are this well-equipped, that are this powerful, which means chances are in your life, in the realm, the circle of your life, you're the strong one. And it doesn't matter if you're the youngest one in the whole generation. Some people say, but but my parents. Yeah, you have to be respectful to them. But it's very possible you might be the strongest one in your entire generation. Because strength has nothing to do with age, not when it comes to the word. I'm just saying, throwing it out there. So if you're strong, you're supposed to be helping others, not dominating them. Does that make sense? You're not supposed to take God's grace and dominate everybody and achieve some kind of thing for yourself. Just think of it that way. Okay, I won't say anymore. For now. Romans 15.1 Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, 
But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about, as far as Lycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for, so ma for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they were indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I urge you, brethren, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, 
that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Amen. Next time we'll move from salvation perspectives to sanctification perspectives. Exciting times, my friends, truly. Nothing more valuable than this. God is good. Okay, guys, get the lights.
Let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for giving us this time to contemplate the true meaning of life, realizing that it's not about celebrating ourselves, but rather bringing glory to you through the enabling ministry of your Spirit, and also understanding more and more how very precious each day is. Father, we rejoice in your grace and your love always, knowing that we were yet sinners when you sent your Son, our Lord and Savior, to die for us. There was no other way under heaven that we'd ever possess the hope that we now do in Christ. We pray that others not here with us humbly submit to the contents of this message as well and that whoever is graced out by it, they too are set free. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name that we do pray by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thank you.